worldviews. The easy thing would be to say uh, this is an intellectual exercise so that I understand better, you know, what different people believe in in this country. Um, but really, it's not been so much intellectual as many of you have come to me and said, uh, what do I do because somebody I love very deeply uh, has bought into this worldview. Uh, a spouse, a child, a sibling, someone you work with. And, and in a way, you almost feel powerless because no matter what you try to say or do, it doesn't seem to... I guess as we come to finish the series today, but understand I'm going to do uh, in, in November two other applications of it that we see in, in our country. Uh, but as we finish the basic series today, I, I want to assure you that you're not powerless. That really you are equipped in so many ways to be able to not just listen to, but respond to and and say with confidence, what is the Judeo-Christian worldview? Now, I find that when I'm dealing on a worldview level, and most people think that's intellectual, but it's deeply experiential, but when they think they're going on a, a worldview level, that the conversations happen very easily. There's not an argument that's coming, and uh, I listen, and I get to respond, and then I get to ask questions, and boy, have I last, you know, I've come up with a lot of questions. But um, you also, you have a mind just as good as my mind and just as good as any other mind that believes in other worldview. So what I would encourage you to do is say, you're not powerless. First thing, study up. And become more involved and more uh, uh, informed about what those people believe. But for a lot of Christians, you're not too well studied up on what you believe. You haven't studied more uh, recently enough to, to say it with confidence. And you know it's back there somewhere. And believe me, sometimes I'm praying because I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm praying and out it comes. And it comes out pretty well. But you need to know what you believe as well as what they believe and do it in a listening way. Secondly, you can exhibit something that nobody else exhibits and that's called unconditional love. The other worldviews don't use that word very often. And so by exhibiting unconditional love, you're the best example that they know of who this Jesus is. A third thing you can do is just continue to be an example to them of what a follower of Jesus looks like. You know, how does a follower of Jesus think? How does a a follower of Jesus believe? What does he feel? What are her activities? Be that sort of example. And I save the best for last. Pray like crazy for people. Just continue to talk to God about them. And I say this because... I understand that my prayers allow me to see the work of God going on in people's hearts. And believe me, everybody, everybody has a series of circumstances in their lives that are, that are going to be these decision-making events. And when I say decision-making, they're either going to trust one worldview that I don't think will, will satisfy them, or it'll be driving them back to Christ Jesus in the Judeo-Christian worldview. So you have those 
opportunities, you might say. And don't underestimate prayer because God loves it when you pray. And he longs to answer your prayer. And his Holy Spirit has been called in a great poem, the hound of heaven who works on people and continues to seek them out until they come to him. Well, so we come to the end today of our explanation, exploration of these major worldviews uh, and the ones especially we see in our uh, Western culture. Uh, we claim that they are current worldviews, but I've used Genesis 1 to 11 to take you back to understanding they are ancient worldviews. They come with our human, with our humanity. Uh, you see uh, a disbelief in God very early on in human history. You see what they choose instead. And so when it begins in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Very early on, people began to say, I'm not so sure about that. And they come up with their other alternatives. So when Moses writes this about 1500 B.C. and he's talking about how humanity began and how the universe begins, the beginning of the cosmos and the history of the human race, he describes the same attitudes then that we see today. So a worldview is like this operating system on your, on, on your smartphone or your computer. In, in other words, uh, it is a way in which information is brought in and then disseminated and, and evaluated and, 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 and then activity occurs. And just like Apple phone or an iPhone doesn't work too well with an Android phone, I understand that this is like a worldview. We hear the same things, we see the same uh, 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 truth, but we interpret them differently. So a piece of evidence to me that takes me to God, to somebody else who, let's say, is pantheist, takes them somewhere else. Where do we stand? What is it that we claim we are? We begin with God is. God is. That is the beginning of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And I used to assume that anybody who said God is not either was uh, deceived or had made bad choices. Now I realize that they really have never thoroughly considered my worldview or superficially considered it, but not accepted it with the evidence that he or she possessed. We know that our culture has bought into secular answers to truth. It has always looked for other answers since the beginning of humanity. We see what's displayed in front of us, but we say there's got to be other alternatives. So the three main secular uh, operating systems or worldviews are the ones that say we deny God either as God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit. One of the persons of the Trinity is denied. So... If you weren't at all three, here they are in just a very very short summary. The secular worldviews begin with secular materialism, saying that there's no spiritual reality. All that we can truly know is what we can measure. There's no spiritual truth. There's no miracles. There's just physical truth. So when Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the materialists will say, Go ahead, prove it. To which we can claim, well, you prove what, how you think it began. And they say, well, you know, it was the Big Bang, but where did energy and where did that small molecule become from? 
Where did it all begin? How do you get something from nothing? So if honest, the materialist will claim the, the, the universe had no cause. There was nothing behind the beginning of what we know as the universe. Now, I claim that's a pretty big leap of faith to get something from nothing. So uh, there can be no creator for the materialist, only a Big Bang theory with no answer as to how energy and matter came into being. And many in the world of science, not all, there's many Christians in science, but many in the world of science are secular materialists. Next we go to humanism or secular humanism, saying there's no universal ethic. If there's no creator with materialism, the humanist is saying there's no one standard for living. Uh, he believes that man is his own leader and his own God. There's no universal ethic. Sin is relative. And the society gets to choose what is right and what is wrong. So the humanist, the secular humanist, will look at the Ten Commandments and say, you know, those are quaint, worn-out laws that do not work today, especially the first four that relate to our relationship with God. You shall worship no other God before me, etc., etc. The other six deal with our relationship with humans, and they may or may not be useful for us today. An example. Um, uh, this week there was a uh, uh, some report given, a scientific study that talks about the advantages of calling your parents by first name versus mom or dad. Uh, think about that. Because it goes back to honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you. I really don't care what I'm called, as long as I'm not called late to dinner. Uh, and if my children start to call me Jim, I will believe that there's a distance there that's been caused by something I've done. Because usually I'm called dad. And I like that. But if they changed, I don't think it would be such a big deal. But that is what the humanists are going after. Let's choose our own rules. Let's shake everything up. It all depends on the current society to shape uh, the laws of human community. So today, the humanist worldview, you will find influential in government, uh, legal institutions, and the educational institutions. They're not all humanist, but the, the worldview is very influential there. Because sin is relative, that means there's no universal laws. And if there's no universal laws, we don't need a Jesus who has died for us. And I will always remember, this is way back in the 60s when I was a new Christian, but I was watching uh, one of these Sunday morning news programs. I didn't go to church all the time um, as a new Christian. I was watching one of those news pro programs, and uh, the, the topic was the Billy Graham crusade. And how many people were attending the Billy Graham crusade? And, and, and as they were talking through this, it was made up of, you know, the intelligentsia, uh, the, the, the scholars and the, and, and the really so-called smart people of the world. And they got on this subject of sin. And for the life of them, they could not say that they were sinners. For the life of them, they couldn't do that. And so you saw them going, well, I don't know if I ever sin, you know, use the quote signs on television or not. I don't know. I mean, I'm basically, and they would work all their way around that. Why? Because if they 
admitted and confessed that they were sinners, then they would need to know that they need forgiveness from God. So sin is relative. No universal laws. And as I watched this program, I, 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 you know, I, I, I was at this 16, 17 years of age and wondering, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Compare that. Pope Francis is made the Pope the day after his election. Journalists interview him and they say, well, what's the influence you want to have on the world? What should we expect of you as you begin as Pope? And his first words were these, I am a sinner. Secular humanism. Secular pantheism, I call it secular because God is not personal and therefore there's no Holy Spirit. In humanism, they don't need a savior. In pantheism, everything's a spirit. If I had a rock in my hand, I could say, here, hold that, but hold it very carefully because God's in that rock. More than that, it's a magic rock, Mike. It's a very magic rock. Pet it. Kiss it. Bathe with it. And good things will happen to you. And when I say that, I want you to understand, I've been presented with crystals and say, hold this and your life will go well. Hmm. So it's almost like the, you know, the fuzzy dice you used to put up in front of the mirror. Put that crystal up there and you'll never be in an accident. Oh, you might keep your eyes open too, but, you know, it's like this, there'll be this spiritual aura around you because you're carrying around this creation which doesn't really have any magical powers. They cannot believe in just one Holy Spirit who sets the standards of what we're supposed to think and do. And one of the great Christians of our time, uh, Augustine of, of Hippo, sort of summarized all the things that people go through. Now, this is in the 4th century A.D. And, and St. Augustine, for you Catholics, but if you call him St. Augustine, you've got to call me St. Jim, okay? Uh, Saint, because... He's not recorded of doing any miracles, but he's still a saint, okay? He, he said it well when he summarized the futility of all these secular worldviews in the 4th century. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. We're going to be searching and looking around for anything that will work. And what do we want in life? We want to know that we're powerful, And secondly, we want to know that we're good people. And we will be restless until we find something that does that for us. The Judeo-Christian worldview does that, but people want other ways. And here's the thing, it's not going to eternally, nor is it going to temporarily work. After him, St. C.S. Lewis, because we're into saints, okay, simplified it by saying, man is incurably religious. Isn't that a great phrase? We're going to be, we're going to serve somebody. We're going to believe something beyond and beyond us. And so we will worship something even if it's ourselves. And then here's the classic. St. G.K. Chesterton uh, accurately described how we slide into secular worldviews when he says, when man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes anything. Anything. I'll try that. 
It's like, what do you want on your pizza? I'll try that for a while. If that doesn't work, I'll move on. So what does it mean then for us to take up the Judeo-Christian worldview? What are its core values? What is it that we uh, cling on to? What do we believe is the truth that is eternal, everlasting, and will be always so? We begin with the Creator, Genesis 1.27. So God, uh, first of all, uh, uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was God, and He created the heavens and the earth. And so... What we believe that sets us apart is there is a creator. And from the secular worldview that says that there is no God or you are a God or everything is God, this sets God apart. And Moses was led by the Spirit in terms of how the universe begins in Genesis 1. All matter and all energy comes from God the creator. And humanity is the peak of his creation the last in time, and the greatest of all because only humanity is made in God's image. So it says in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Judeo-Christian worldview, which hopefully you cling on to, can be defined this way. And as I say that, please understand, I'm trying to summarize the truth of an infinite God in puny words. And I fall short. But here we go. The belief that God is real, that he is knowable, caring, and active among humanity. The belief that God is real, knowable, caring, and active among humanity. So you, you say, well, what does that mean then? How, how do we break that down if with that definition into the core values? First, God is the eternal creator. And we are his creatures. God is the creator. As creatures then, we're made by him for his glory and for his purposes. We find our life purpose in, in this life and in the life to come from him. We're not on our own. And so without this purpose in mind, we'll be restless until we find our rest in Him. We'll be unsatisfied. We'll be groping for something better. Now that makes materialists angry. Why? Because they say there is not a God that you can prove. Therefore, the Heavenly Father is not the Father who knows best. If you cannot prove Him scientifically, I cannot believe Him. And yet I can present to a materialist a whole lot of things they believe that they can't prove. What is happening is they refuse to believe that God is spirit and therefore those who worship him will be worshiping him in spirit and truth. The second core value is that God knows and is knowable. He's not a mystery. And and because he is knowable, we can have a relationship with him and we are accountable to him. So God is a person and has a personality. He knows everything about us, but he's also knowable and wants us to know him. He is more than a proof of science, but a person who has uh, created us and asked for a relationship with us. A relationship, not just a belief, not just a trust, but a relationship. And since he knows all about us and he knows what's best for us, 
we are accountable to our Creator for the way we live. And each of us will give an account for our choices and, and the ways that we have decided to live. So that's the second thing. Thirdly is that God is holy. Not just that He exists, but He is perfect. And if He is holy, it means we're in trouble. We need saving. His moral laws are not negotiable like a humanist desires. They are timeless. They are not changed over uh, the eons. And they point to the highest form of ethical living. So you have to look at it this way. Compared to God's perfection... I'm not perfect. Are you? I hope not. You're not perfect. Compared to God's perfection, I'm not even good. I can't even call myself a good guy. His perfection causes me to accept that I'm less than perfect and to have a relationship with Him. I need help. I'm a sinner, like Pope Francis has said, and I am in need of being saved of my sin. And in Jesus, I find God's only Son perfect in every way. He goes to His cross. He takes upon our sin on His body there on that cross. And as He takes upon our sin, God now looks at us as people whose sins are forgiven. So when I place my trust in Jesus Christ, it is like Jesus is taking all of my sin, putting it on Himself, And now I'm left here, and God looks at me in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, we know it's not, you know, it's the way God has chosen to do it. We know we're going to, at least I know I'm going to sin again. But Jesus Christ continues to take it on. And in Jesus, I find God's only Son perfect in every way. He goes to His cross. He takes upon our sin on His body there on that cross. And as He takes upon our sin, God now looks at us as people whose sins are forgiven. So when I place my trust in Jesus Christ, it is like Jesus is taking all of my sin, putting it on Himself, and now I'm left here, and God looks at me in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now we know it's not, you know, it's the way God has chosen to do it. We know we're going to, at least I know I'm going to sin again. But Jesus Christ continues to take it on. So it's not because my activity and my thoughts are perfect. It's because they're taken care of. And that is what Jesus does on the cross. Now, when the uh, humanist hears this, the humanist says, oh, come on, come on. Let's just get together and decide what's right for our group. That's all that really counts. You don't have to be perfect. Why? Because they gave up being perfect. They gave up even having any standards for being perfect. So, I want to suggest that, you know, believing in God is is a great thing. Okay? Um, But relating to God is the best thing of all. Having a relationship with Him where you know you're accepted. And the humanists, the materialists, and the pantheists do not have this. Having a relationship where the God of the Bible says, before we have that relationship, you must be forgiven. It it would be like me challenging LeBron James to a one-on-one half-court game. Okay, I'm 66. I think he's about 28. He's in his peak. I'm still getting there. So, uh, (laughs) And and he's about 6'8 and has arms 
about, you know, a wing spread probably about uh, two feet longer than mine. And I can look at him and I can say, you're not so tough. Come on, give me your best. How many of you think I'd win the one-on-one game? <laughs> you liar. <laughs> no, most of you are realistic. I don't have a chance. Do you understand it in the same way that before a holy God, here I come, as good as I may be, and I must admit, I'm probably a lot better than many of you, but <laughs> as good as I may be, I'm not good enough to compete, to compare, to be considered acceptable to God. He's LeBron. I'm St. James. <laughs> God is holy. And we need saving. I'll put it very personally. Each of us needs a Savior. Next, God cares and is active and we get to relate to Him. How do we know God cares for us? Well, the main thing is Jesus was sent to touch our lives in in this humanity. But because of that, a whole Greek word was reshaped and used for for love. And we took that word agape, we made it into God's love. And this was a sign to the love that he has for each of us. He loves us like no other human can can love us. And his love was demonstrated by giving his son, his son Jesus, to us. We know God is at work and active in our world today, especially in people's lives. And you're the best evidence of that as you tell me what God's doing. So he's active in people's lives so they would believe in him and trust in him and walk with him. What a God we have. But, but for many people we know, the, those core values are just not enough. They say we want proof. So what is the proof we give them? I, I want to say this. They have the same proof we do. In other words, what they call proof, they call beyond a reasonable doubt type of proof. And, and that's really what they mean. And so scholars have said we have what we might call clues to the validity of the Judeo-Christian worldview and, and the existence of God or, or signposts. Uh, signpost. And so we can see enough of God to place our trust in him. Not everything, but enough. And so what are those signposts? And why don't people accept them if we see the same evidence? Uh, Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 1. He says, For since the creation of the world, invisible qualities, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. There's enough of God. There's enough signposts out there. So that even if you do not know much about Jesus or, or, or the doctrine of, uh, of the Trinity, you can turn to God. And people are doing that all the time in miraculous ways and just, just by contemplating the meaning of life. But he says instead of them seeing the evidence and turning to God, they instead tend to worship creatures, things that God they cannot touch or feel or even see. But it works for them, they say. They see the same stuff, but they come to different conclusions. So what are the signposts? First of all, the cosmos. As we look at the universe uh, through, through a telescope and as we look at small cells through a microscope, we, we are, believe me, there's more than luck 
and you are not an accident. The meticulous balance and order of the universe, the preciseness and intricacy of each living cell, points to some sort of intelligence rather than luck. It points to design and purpose. And the more you see of it, the more you are in outright awe of the creator who made it. So the best way to deny is to simply say, well, if it cannot be proven, I cannot believe it. Unfortunately, what that denies is the very scientific method which they claim to believe in. In other words, through all these steps, we can come to really well-known conclusions, accepted conclusions, until we go through those steps again and they say something else. By the way, the the, uh, scientific method, invented by a name of not St. Francis, but Sir Francis Bacon, a Christian. And that's the one the materialists claim to follow, that method. We see it through the history of nations, the advancement of humanity through Judeo-Christian principles. Um, Economics, education, governments were highly influenced by the existence of the church and the monasteries in these little communities. And where dedicated people uh, who were devoted to God, you found them continually advancing their communities and the whole civilization because they would borrow from one another. In agriculture, in medicine, all of these things, and, and, and as they formed in the universities, they all came out of the monasteries where education was developed. Those cultures without the God of the Bible, it's not that they don't make donations to society, but they're left in the dust of collapse. Often when their cruel gods take advantage of them and play games with them, and when their cruel gods say, I'm the one who chooses the ethics And ethics really revolve around having power for yourself. Another signpost is that nobody cares for the marginalized in this world more than Christians. And I want to say this because with the humanistic view, and I'm again, I'm not um, saying that people should not be helped out when there's need, but... um, What I'm trying to say is that, you know, we can give people stuff, but what the Christians have done continually is they've given them less stuff and more of themselves. You see the difference? You're making an investment, not a free gift. And so you look at the works of people like Mother Teresa or missionaries who devoted themselves to sharing God's love and demonstrating it. Uh, with those who need the help most. It wasn't just a little gift that they gave, but they gave themselves. And when governments attempt to do this by simply giving stuff to the poor and they neglect the sacrificial love of God, then what you have is people taking more and more and more. Humanism does not, in general, get its hands dirty among the poor like Christians do, in general, historically. We have the reliability of Scripture. 
And we're continually finding that skeptics who say we cannot believe the authenticity of Scripture, they come up with these new and destroying theories of the reliability of the Bible, and they just don't hold up. Archaeology and history both point to the reality that people and the events of the Bible did happen just as recorded. And finally, we have the signpost of human transformation. People like you, whom God has changed. God continues to transform lives in what humanists call a change of ethics. We call them human miracles that go through investigation, belief, repentance, change of attitudes, and finally change of behavior. All these signs are, you know, signposts are, you know, are telling us that God is real and God's truth is real truth and God is alive and active in the world. One of the probably the most prevalent things that we are seeing today is that, you know, how do we help uh, the prison system develop some sort of way in which people don't end up back there? How do we stop people from spending a life in prison because they go once, twice, three, four times? How does that happen? And uh, the amazing thing is that as studies are being done, uh, they find when you're just in prison and you're just serving your time and then you're released, the chances are you're going to end up back there. But a recent study by Byron Johnson, a Ph.D. from Baylor, uh, published a book documenting research on the effectiveness of faith-based programs in reducing crime and people going back. The words recidivism for those of you who are in law, but uh, I call it going back to jail. (laughs) His empirical evidence of over 20 pages of references and studies comes to this conclusion. In an age of political correctness, perhaps the last acceptable prejudice is the one leveled against the involvement of highly religious people in the faith-based approaches to social problems. Problems the the government cannot fix without them, the highly religious people. There's signposts everywhere, friends. Have confidence in your God. Let's pray. Almighty God, first of all, just speaking with you, to you with these people. I love this country. And I'm not trying to trash it or government. But I realize that there's always been this uneasy alliance between the church and the state. And Lord, because of your power in us and your son's willingness to empty himself and go to the cross for us. We find ourselves using Christ's example and the Holy Spirit's power to come into people's lives and just stay there. We pray for them continually, but we never turn our backs. We help them as much as we can. And that's where the difference is made. It's the true agape love that turns lives around. I pray, especially for those who say, you know, I, 
I, I, I know many humanists where I work or one of my brothers or sisters is in this position and I just don't know what to say. I pray for those who come from a science background and they get ridiculed and criticized because they believe in a creator. I pray for those who hang around people who have these special little bits of power that you can have for a little money. And Lord, at the core of our being is a God who loved us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus. And that because we believe in him, we will have eternal life. Thank you for Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.